Join me in standing out of faith that God is going to speak to you through His Word and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20 is where we will be this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you today, it's always a benefit and a help to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby and you'll find this morning's text on page 879. If you weren't with us last week... We finished chapter 19 in Luke's Gospel, which means Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem for what the church has called throughout the ages Passion Week. And we saw on Sunday of Passion Week, he entered into the city riding on a donkey that had never been ridden before in fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. Then on Monday of Passion Week, he cleansed the temple. It had become a den of thieves and robbers in the Jewish system of religion at the time, and he cleansed it for its purpose that it would be a house of prayer to the nations. And if you just glance down, if you have your Bible open, we left off in verse 47 and 48 with Jesus daily teaching in the temple. It's as though he took up a teacher's residence within the temple. And you'll see that the religious leaders, they were after him to destroy him because they knew what he was up to. He was upsetting their system of self-righteousness and the kingdom was getting ready to be taken away from their hands of leadership but they couldn't find any way to accuse him. They didn't know what to do about Jesus. All the people were hanging on his words. And so we pick up the story this morning with verses 1 through 19 of chapter 20. And I do pray that we too might be hanging on the word of Christ this morning. As he speaks to us now, let us listen. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple... And preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, but they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell this parable to the people. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But Jesus looked at them directly and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. 
At Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do come unto You now asking that You would give us goodness and blessedness from Your Word this morning. We praise You that it is living and active, that it is able to cut our hearts to the quick. We pray that You would do such cutting work among us this morning that you, by your Spirit, would convict us of sin, of justice and righteousness, the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. So help us, we pray, to hear with hearts of eagerness, with minds of repentance, for me to preach as your word says I must. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in 2013 that a Muslim author named Reza Aslan published a book that immediately ascended to the tops of the bestseller list. It was a book that was entitled Zealot. And it's something of an imaginative biography of a first-century political figure, at least according to Reza Aslan. He takes this story of this figure who stirred up no small amount of excitement among the masses in the first century. He brought to himself many numerous people and devoted followers, He, of course, even marched on the city of Jerusalem and claimed that he was going to bring a kingdom, a kingdom that was going to shake the world. And he even died a death at the hands of the Roman Empire, by means of which an execution that was normally only given to those that were accused of insurrection and sedition, trying to undermine and overthrow the Roman Empire. And, of course, Aslan's book, Zealot, is about Jesus Christ. And it's one of a long line of books that you can find throughout the ages that attempts to understand who Jesus is. Tries to take all of what Jesus said about himself and try to understand it in terms of the times in which he lived and what exactly happened to him. And over the last 15 months or so, we've been studying yet another one of these books that tries to communicate the truth of who Jesus is. This book, of course, comes in God's Word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit from the pen of Luke. It's a book that Luke chapter 1 tells us is meant to give us certainty concerning the things about Jesus. And nothing is more important and significant about which we are to be certain than who Jesus is. So kids, say you go home to lunch today. And your mom or your dad looks at you from across the table and says, Who is Jesus? What words might you use to answer that question? Maybe you would say, well, Jesus is the Redeemer. Or maybe you would say he's the Savior of sinners. Perhaps you might even mention he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Or students, those of you who are older, maybe you've been taught the shorter catechism, you know a much more complicated and sophisticated answer. Jesus is the only Redeemer of God's elect, the eternal Son of God, who became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Maybe you'll say that to your parents over lunch. But what you could also say is just a simple five-word sentence that is indeed a summary of what we're looking at this morning. Jesus is God's beloved son. Jesus is God's beloved son. It's a point that actually underlies these two scenes that we're going to look at this morning. And I hope we're going to see it so prominently that we may even wonder why, if you're familiar with this text, you've never seen it before. Because it's clearly hinted at in this first 
part of our text, which is the first eight verses that deal with this question about Jesus' authority. And then it's undeniably alluded to in this parable about Jesus' identity that comes in verses 9 through 19. So that's just how we want to walk through the text this morning. First seeing a question about the Son's authority, and then secondly, a parable about the Son's identity. And so if you're in here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, I recognize that these five words, Jesus is God's beloved Son, is to be the full occupation of your mind, the full affection of your heart. Or you might be in here this morning and you don't really think Jesus is God's beloved Son. Maybe you're trying to figure out if you should take Jesus at His word. I want you to listen carefully this morning. Because what you'll see in this text is not only Jesus warn you about what happens to those who continue to reject Him. You'll also see something of the good news of God the Father and the love that He has shown sinners, rebels even like you and me, in giving His one and only Son. So first of all, you want to see a question about the Son's authority. Look at how verse 1 begins. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up. Now we know from the other Gospels this is Tuesday of Passion Week. So the Passion Week barrels ever forward in Luke's Gospel. And here we have the Sanhedrin coming up to Jesus because the Sanhedrin consisted of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And this language in verse 1 of they came up, it's this, it's this word in the original that kind of speaks of a connotation of suddenness, of unexpectedness. So here he is doing what he always does preaching and teaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. And like a cold wind can blow through a hallway and seemingly suck out all of the life and energy, so too does the Sanhedrin blow into the temple suddenly to have a question, a conflict with Jesus Christ. And instead of praying to God in the temple, which is what would have been proper and good, what they instead do is pray upon the Son of God, trying to trick Him and trap Him. Because notice what they say in verse 2. Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? So students, you need to remember what just happened the day before, 20, 24 hours before. Jesus is in the temple cleaning it out of all of its problems. And here come the Sanhedrin. You've got the chief priests. They were in charge of worship in the temple. You've got the scribes and the teachers, something like the preachers and teachers of first century Israel. You've also got the elders. They would have been akin to the non-clergy members of this elite ruling society. And here they come trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick Jesus into saying something that they could then go to the Roman authorities and say, see, he's committing blasphemy. Or see, he is indeed committing political sedition and insurrection because only the Roman authorities had the power of the sword. Only the Roman authorities could dispatch and destroy Jesus like the Sanhedrin wants. So they're not coming with a sincere question but nonetheless, they're asking this question about authority. And if you were a Jew in the first century, authority was a very, very important thing when it came to doing any kind of teaching. If you would listen to rabbis debate or teach at this time in the first century, you would often hear of, of them calling upon derived authority. It would be akin to saying, well, Rabbi Frank says this. But Rabbi Joe disputes him by saying this. Well, I agree with Rabbi Ted because he says this. And they're asking, who gives Jesus the right to clean out the temple, to do everything that he is doing. And maybe you know uh, Jesus' heritage, 
his training enough to know that no presbytery in our church would license Jesus today because he didn't have the proper instruction, training, and credentials. It surely was true all the way back then, too. No one just gets to do this without any authority. So surely he's got some kind of authority, doesn't he? While Jesus knows what's going on, as sudden as the trap is sprung, he's going to leap out of it with his own question, because notice what he says in verse 3 and 4. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This isn't an action of cowardice of Jesus. It's common in this first century style of debate and dispute among the teachers of the law. And what he does in this question is basically show two reasons why the Sanhedrin, but also I think it's true of any ordinary person, two reasons why they reject Jesus' authority. First, they reject it because of unbelief. Notice what they say in verse 5. They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say John's authority came from heaven... He will say, why did you not believe him? So think back if you've been with us all the way through studying Luke's gospel. What do we know about John the Baptist's ministry? He shows up out of the wilderness, this kind of final prophet of the old covenant age, bursts forth and stirs up all of the Judean countryside in some sort of a spiritual frenzy preaching this gospel of repentance. And he calls the Jewish leaders now standing before Jesus nothing but snakes and vipers who need to turn away from their trust in their own spiritual heritage and come to the Messiah, because John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah to come. And maybe you know from Luke's, I'm sorry, John's gospel, when John the Baptist first puts his eyes on Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or maybe you remember when Jesus was baptized, John baptized him. And as the crowds were looking in on the baptism, the heavens split open, and what did the Father from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. So these leaders know that if they're going to say John's authority came from heaven, then they have to believe what John said about Jesus, or even what John heard about Jesus. He's God's beloved Son. But they can't do that, so they reject Him because of unbelief. Secondly, they reject Jesus' authority because of fear. Look at verse 6. But if we say John's authority came from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. All the people loved John the Baptist. They know they can't say that his authority was simply man-made or man-given, because the people, the crowd surrounding the temple, are just going to march outside, pick up a bunch of stones, and cast them upon the Sanhedrin's head. So they can't say that. So, of course, they're in a conundrum of sorts, aren't they? So what do they do? Well, look at verse... 7, they answered Jesus and said, we don't know where his authority came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I think there's a couple points at which we need to recognize some spiritual lessons with this simple conflict and interchange with Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Uh, The first of which is you often find throughout your life, maybe you know this experientially already, that people will oppose the truth of Jesus Christ's authority. Uh, They mean to intimidate you away from believing such nonsense. But what we see here is the intimidation is just a manifestation of their fear. They're just scared of the people. They can't answer Jesus. They don't believe in Him. 
And Jesus cuts through it with one simple question. And that often can be the case when people are intimidating you based out of fear. You just kind of cut through the fear. You cut through the intimidation right away with a simple question that exposes the folly of their unbelief. Or maybe more necessarily important for us to see is that you take these people, the Sanhedrin, and their prominence, their power, their place in Israel was so important to them. Their ability to have influence among the covenant kingdom of Israel is so vital to them that they know if they recognize Jesus is God's beloved son, they're going to have to lay all of it down. And they can't do it. It's too valuable to them. And so often, isn't it true that many people, because of perceived importance and influence in the world, end up missing who Jesus is, lest they have to surrender something in following him. A couple weeks ago, I was helping one of our kids with a project for school, which was on national symbols of the United States. And so the first order of business in our work that day was figuring out what are the national symbols of the United States. And so he came across things like the Liberty Bell or the Statue of Liberty, and eventually he settled on the bald eagle because he had to give up presentation of one of these symbols. And if you were going to a Jew at this time in first century Israel and ask him, hey, what's a national symbol of Israel? Well, there's a lot of different things they might be able to mention or focus on. But increasingly, by this time, Jesus shows up. One of the most cherished symbols in Israel for their national identity was a vineyard. Now, you can go home later today and read Isaiah chapter 5. You have this parable of the vineyard in which God likens Israel to his chosen precious vineyard in redemptive history. So much had this identity began to take shape in their own life that if you were in the temple at which Jesus was standing at this very moment and you walked by the doorway that went from the porch to the holy place, you would have seen a vine stretching 105 feet into the air, essentially. It was made out of the finest gold. And all of the fruit on this vine were the most precious gems and jewels. For the nation of Israel, if you wanted to know of their chosen precious identity as God's people, they would just point to a vineyard. And it's highly significant and relevant because as Jesus now moves from this parable about his, I'm sorry, the question about his authority to the parable about his identity, it's all about a vineyard. Because if you just glance down at verses 9 through 12, you can kind of narrate this parable quite quickly as he speaks it to the crowds, but surely the leaders are listening in as well as we're getting ready to find out. You have a man who owns a vineyard. He goes away to a far country for a period of time. So he essentially leases this vineyard to some tenants, to some workers that are going to cultivate it and hopefully bring a harvest of fruit. Well, eventually he decides, hey, it's time for me to reap my harvest of fruit. And so he sends a servant to collect fruit. And as this servant arrives, instead of receiving fruit at the hands of the tenants, he receives their fists. You see that they beat him and send him away empty-handed. And so the owner sends more servants. And they beat those servants and send them away empty-handed. So look at what the owner decides to do in verse 13 and 14. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And maybe in our context today, you wonder how the tenants could do something so foolish and wicked and think that the negative consequence wasn't going to fall on them, that they could just kill the owner's son and think that the vineyard would suddenly be theirs. 
Well, according to the customs at this time, if the vineyard's son just kind of suddenly showed up into the vineyard, the assumption would have been that the owner died. And so the son is coming to claim his rightful inheritance. And so therefore, if they can kill the son, then who gets the vineyard? Well, we get the vineyard is what the tenants are thinking. And so they do exactly that. Notice verse 15. And they threw out the son from the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus asked rhetorically of the crowds, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? You know, students, kids, you can test out your sense of justice maybe in certain ways with a similar question. You have tenants killing the son of the one who owns the vineyard. What is an appropriate response? What is an appropriate punishment? Is there such a thing that is right justice for those that have committed such an extreme act of rejection? Well, you see that it meets with an extreme judgment in verse 16. Jesus says, He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Thus ends the parable of the wicked tenants. If you kind of rewound the clock back to 1995 in Cleveland, Ohio, you would find the city by the end of the year consumed with something that was subsequently called the move. It was in November of that year that the owner of the Cleveland Browns, the National Football League franchise in Cleveland, announced that he was going to move the Cleveland Browns to play football next season in Baltimore, Maryland, and you can understand the kind of animosity and hostility that was immediately thrown Art Modell, he's the owner, Art Modell's way as people called into radio shows to shout their distaste for his decision from the sidelines in the stadium. People were uttering epitaphs that you couldn't print in paper, and they were writing furious editorials about this just heinous move that was getting ready to take place. The owner taking something away that they felt belonged to them. And that kind of animosity and hostility, you need to know, absolutely pales in comparison to the animosity and hostility that Israelites, Jews, faithful followers of God would have felt in what they just heard in this parable. Because notice what they cry out in response in verse 16 at the end. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, if you have a different translation that might say, God forbid, or may it never be, it's maybe the harshest phrase that you can find used in the New Testament. Because the crowd is understanding what Jesus is saying. Now, they take this parable, and they don't need some sort of divine key to understand the allegorical meaning. They know the man who owns the parable, uh, owns the vineyard in this parable, that's God. That the vineyard itself, of course, is Israel. That the servants who go to seek fruit, it's the prophets of old. That the only son, the beloved son of this owner is is Jesus Christ. And that in killing him, giving the kingdom of Israel away to others means the gospel is going forth now to the Gentiles. It's going to be yanked away in judgment upon Jerusalem and Israel, which we're going to see in coming weeks. And they cry out, surely not. And so what Jesus does to prove his point is point them to a proof text. Look at verse 17. He looked directly at them, which is... Language in the Greek that speaks of intensity. So you want to think Jesus with with great intensity, looking everyone in the eye as he says this. He looks at them directly and says, Well, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. So he's quoting here from Psalm 118, which surely the vast majority of people in his hearing there at the temple that day had it memorized. They knew exactly what he was talking about when Solomon was building the temple, that there was this stone that was cast away as utterly useless and pointless, but in reality it was the chosen precious cornerstone on which the foundation was going to be built. And what he is saying is, of course, in light of this parable, don't you understand that in rejecting me, you have rejected the very cornerstone of God's people. Even further, notice what he says in verse 18, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's a terrifying thing, to reject Jesus Christ. The rabbis of the time had something of a proverbial saying to try to capture just the horror, the the pulverizing nature of a stone falling upon people in judgment. Because Jesus here is is probably quoting from even two Old Testament texts, Daniel 2 verse 34 and Isaiah 8 verse 14, which is this ancient way of speaking about a stone falling upon people in judgment. And so the rabbis would say, well, think of a stone and a pot. And if the stone falls on the pot, clay pot, woe to the pot. And if the pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. No matter what happens, if you reject the stone and run into it or it falls on you, that will not be a good thing. And of course, in the economy of God, it's a most terrifying thing to oppose Jesus Christ, to remain in unbelief, to reject the king, even as this group of people did just in a few days' time pursue his very death at the hands of the Roman Empire, shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. What is God going to do as a result? He's going to take away the kingdom from Israel. He's going to go to the ends of the earth. And of course, also ultimately, Christ Jesus will fall upon them, not in mercy and grace, but he'll fall upon them like a cornerstone. So kids, if you were in the temple at this time and you saw a cornerstone, you need to think of a stone that's some seven feet long at least three feet high. Scholars would say it weighs something like 80 tons, which if my math is right, that's something like 160,000 pounds. Imagine that falling on someone. Such will be the judgment of Jesus Christ upon those who have rejected him. So do you see it in this question about the son's authority? He is God's beloved son. Do you see it in this parable about the son's identity? Jesus is God's beloved son. And I wonder how you are responding to him. We need not wonder at how the immediate original audience of the Sanhedrin were responding to Jesus. Because look at verse 19 as our text closes. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. I remember sitting in a college literature class one day as the professor was at the front of the room pondering deep things in American literature. And the subject for that day was Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, which you may have heard of before, read of before, seen the movie of before. It's based on the Salem witch trials. And somewhere along the way in her discussion, she asked the class to consider how the conflict within the story revealed the true character of some various characters in the story. Uh, Because maybe you do agree and you do know that it is often conflict that shows the true colors within a person. It's often conflict that reveals what is actually there at the bottom when you kind of steer clear or or wipe away all of just the, the superficial veneer that tends to mark people. 
And what you get in chapter 20 of Luke's gospel, we'll see this this week and next week, is one long sustained chess match, a conflict, an argument between Jesus and these religious leaders. Just one superficial, supernatural, and spiritual wave attack after another trying to discredit Jesus and prove him to be a blasphemer and insurrectionist. And what we're going to find all along the way is that they're going to fail. But what we're going to find along the way too is that Jesus, in so refuting their arguments and teaching in response to their questions, uh, he reveals through this conflict much, not just about who he is, but much about the gospel that he preaches as well. Because kids, remember, in verse 1, we're told Jesus is just kind of in his resident teaching post in the temple preaching the gospel. So what does this conflict over his authority and identity tell us about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I want to point your attention to three things, and then I want to close this morning. So the first thing you need to see is the Lord's patience towards rebels is long. You see that in the parable, don't you? Servant after servant. Keep going to these wicked tenants. They're beaten. They're sent away empty-handed, and yet another servant comes. And the crowd and the leaders, they realize what Jesus is talking about there, how the nation of Israel has treated God's covenant prophets of old, killing them, beating them, not listening to them, turning away from them. But what did God keep doing? He kept sending them for over a thousand years, prophet after prophet, that they might turn from their sin. Maybe you're in here this morning and need to consider the Lord's patience towards you. How long has your life been marked by thoughts of pride, small commitment, infrequent devotion? How many Sabbaths and sermons and sacraments have you wasted? And yet you're still here because God is patient with you. And as the book of Romans says, don't presume upon his patience as though it's something you deserve. Rather, let his kindness lead you to repentance. For if you were to see his patience today that Jesus Christ comes and visits you even this morning through his word and spirit, the good news of God's patience towards you in Jesus is that very stone that the Bible says will fall upon you in judgment. That kind of pulverizing, crushing reality of God's judgment towards sin, you deserve it. But Jesus took it when he died on the cross in just a few days' time for people who have rebelled against him, willingly going to the cross to die in their place. So the Lord's patience towards rebels is long, but it isn't forever, which leads to the second point. The Lord's punishment of his enemies is certain. I hope you've paid attention to these kind of twin notes of, of grace and judgment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We've said this, haven't we, over and over, just even recently as last week, that there's only two things you can do with Jesus. You can receive him or reject him. You can receive him to your joy or you can reject him to your judgment. Just as his mercy in Christ is certain for those who believe, his judgment, his punishment in Christ is certain to those who oppose Jesus. And then the third thing, and finally I want you to see this morning, is that spiritual privilege does not guarantee salvation. Here's what I mean. What you see over and over in Jesus' ministry is he's warring against this understanding among the Jewish people that they deserve a place in the kingdom just because they're Jews, just because they're part of the covenant community. It's even when John the Baptist burst on the scene and he says they need to repent because God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham, he says, because they were simply just trusting in their identity as Abraham's children. 
And what the Bible is going to say later on, Paul's going to reflect on this, a Jew of Jew himself, he's going to say in Romans chapter 9 as he's thinking about the iniquity and the sin of his people, he says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and according to their flesh, the Christ. All of these privileges that were theirs, instead of bringing them to salvation in Christ, were only means by which they were now judged because of what they rejected. Instead of seeing the Lord Jesus through all of these wonderful privileges, they missed him altogether. So devoted were they to their spiritual privilege. And we dare not think that this was just a first century problem. Uh, Do you know that many people who have been baptized into the church For years and years, members of a covenant community, maybe with official capacity serving the Lord Jesus Christ, have not realized that in reality what they are trusting in is their spiritual privilege more than Jesus Christ himself, who alone can save sinners. So why is it that you might not receive the stone falling upon you? Oh, you trust not in what you may have done years ago, walking down an aisle to make a profession of faith. You look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is God's beloved Son and in so doing you find forgiveness and eternal life in Him. Because understand what is happening even in this moment in God's economy of grace. The owner of the vineyard has sent his son into his vineyard and he's looking for faith. He's looking for fruit. And I wonder if you're receiving this beloved Son of God or are you scheming against Him how you might avoid Him Or are you indeed surrendering everything that you might be coming to Christ in faith? Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is just, righteous, and holy. That he has come on the great errand of love to save sinners, to save rebels like us. That you continue to be patient with us. Even giving us your son this morning by your word and spirit. So we pray that you would help us to come to Christ in faith. To not rest upon anything else. To not treasure anything else more that would prevent us from coming to him. So help us, we pray, to look upon him in faith and receive him unto our everlasting joy. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.